Welcome to the Faith Today podcast, conversations inspired by Canada's Christian magazine. If you're anything like me, you've had a dream not come true or experienced some kind of deep disappointment in life that stopped you in your tracks. What comes next? You probably asked. This podcast is full of very good, and I'm going to say godly advice, including something called the wonder hack and a creepy but illuminating death practice. I'm Karen Stiller, and I'm joined today by Scott Erickson, author of the recently released book, Say Yes, Discover the Surprising Life Beyond the Death of a Dream. Scott is a well-known artist. He's Instagram's Scott the Painter, if you want to look him up and see his beautiful creative work. He's a performance artist and an author, also a dad and a cat owner, and both his son and cat pop up in this podcast. I invited my daughter Holly Stiller to join me in this conversation because although we are at very different spots in our lives, we share the curiosity and adventurous spirit and appreciation of Scott's key question, what are you free to do because your dream died? So sit back or walk your dog or whatever you do when you listen to a podcast. This is a bit of a long one for us, but it's worth it. And at the end, there's a bonus. Scott has a very helpful insight on deconstruction that you won't want to miss. Let's go. So welcome, Scott. We're so glad you're with us today. Thanks. I'm so glad to be with you. So I read your book first, uh, Say Yes. And at one point, I don't know if it was just past the introduction, I thought, am I the target audience for this book? Because I thought, am I too old? I worried I was too old. I'm 55. And then as I got a little further, I actually started to think about some of the disappointments I've experienced in my life that I could really quickly name. That may be a problem that I could so quickly name them, but I did. And, And I realized, no, this very helpful book that asks the question, what are you free to do because your dream died? is speaking directly to me, but I thought right away about my beautiful 23-year-old daughter, Holly, and I knew that it would also speak to her. I'm kind of mid, well, past midpoint. She is starting block uh, time in her life. So I've invited Holly uh, to join us today, and we're just going to talk together. So over to you, Holly. Yeah, well, it's really really great to meet you, Scott. I really loved the book, and I found it really encouraging. There is one story in particular that really struck me and that I really, I felt like I resonated with you in this this moment where you're, I, I believe it's like a church gathering and you see this kind of Dwight Schrute-like man, <laughs> I think you say like pirouetting <laughs> to the Lord. Um, yeah. and, you, and you kind of talk about your internal posture towards him as kind of like despising him, but then respecting him. And I've definitely been there, not the man dancing freely, but the one watching it and having really mixed feelings. I think many of us have. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, well, I use, that's a great, um, thank you. That story is really fun to talk about. I use the story of David when the Ark of the Covenant gets stolen and they're bringing it back in Jerusalem. He's there like dancing with all his might kind of in his Old Testament uh, underwear. And his wife is watching from a window and she despises him in her heart, it says. So I was, my kind of question is like, how do we, if the Ark of the Covenant symbolizes like 
a covenant between the creator and creation. So like the giver of existence and existence itself. So there's like this existence in the, you know, in the presence of existence. How does somebody dance, learn how to dance? And then how does somebody become a person who despises those who figured out how to dance? And then I use that story and it was, it wasn't, I wasn't really despising them as much as like, I thought it was hilarious. It just looked really funny and I was laughing. And then as I watched this person, I, and I ended up at this charismatic meeting and I just, you know, there's lots of stuff going on. I just noticed this guy in the far back corner. Yeah. Doing pirouettes to the Lord. And it would, it just looked ridiculous. And, and I just watched him like the whole time. And then after a while I just got quiet. And then I, as I just watched him, I realized I was a bit jealous and I remember just inwardly thinking, how did you figure out how to be so comfortable in your own skin? Like, you're so much freer than I am with all my judgment and stuff. And I realized it's like, oh, because I want to dance. I don't want to stand on the side and despise those who figured out how to dance in the presence of existence, in the presence of life. And so it's kind of like this invitation of like, <laughs> how maybe, we, maybe we've, because of cynicism or heartbreak or over intellectualism or pride, we can find ourselves down the road of our life and just being like stuck on the side, despising those who are enjoying life. And how do we get back in touch with the joy of life and the dance of life? And then how do we, and then it leads into like, how do we become a contribution? Because dancing is really being a contribution. So I use that metaphor as here's how we move from comparison to contribution in our life, because we live in an age of comparison more than any other human cultures ever more than any other time in history because of our screens and our technology we are privy to all kinds of lives unfolding around us and we know now after like 10 12 years of this that it's literally killing us the data is saying it makes us depressed it's making us not enjoy our lives we're obsessed we're full of comparison and it's it leads to suicide or it leads to some kind of like there's a there's a spectrum in suicide like there's a turning off parts of yourself just killing parts of yourself even though you're still alive and so and that's how you know all of this stuff came out of my own journey of like i don't want to stand on the side and despise those who are figured out how to dance i want to i want to participate as well and so how do i move from the, the despiser to the participant is that where's that story came from I'd like to say that, first of all, I completely also resonated with that story because I have literally done the same thing. <laughs> Stood in a church service, <laughs> watched someone dance, thought yeah. they looked silly and deeply envied their freedom at the same time. Yeah. <laughs> so um, just, you know, for the record. I will say I don't, I'm not jealous of the people who do flags. I have no interest in that. That's, <laughs> just to be honest. <laughs> I'm with you on that. I've been hit in the face by a flag before. So. <laughs> so Scott, in the book, you talk about what the voice of giving up is like. So the voice of giving up, of course, stops us from dancing. So can you, um, you know, sort of briefly summarize that voice of giving up and then we'll dig into how we fight that? The voice of giving up is your voice, the part of you that is trying to protect you in some ways, because it wants you to survive and often taking risks or trying something new is not the way, it's not the plan of survival. So it's an inward voice, but often that voice can be informed by adults from our childhood, our parents, you know, shame scenarios, that kind of thing. So what I do in the book, look, I'm not a therapist. I go to therapy 
is that I take some creative levity with it and go, let's personify this fear. Because, you know, when we start to talk about these voices or fears, often it can just become ethereal and vague, and it really helps to put a name on it and stuff like that. In fact, every time I do public speaking, I have this fear of that there's going to be somebody in the audience, usually a professor of some kind, who's going to stand up and interrupt me and be like, I'm sorry, I'm really qualified, I'm smarter than you, and what you're saying isn't true, they're actually lying, and you should be ashamed of yourself. And like, It took me a long time to figure out that that was like something from my like youth, somebody at my church, who didn't even mean anything malice, I just perceived that, you know, and so these things... They happen to us. So what I do in the book and what I did in the show, I, there's this random scene in Jurassic Park 2, The Lost World, where a Tyrannosaurus Rex is in San Diego and it appears in this boy's bedroom window and he's like freaked out and then it like looks at him. I've always loved dinosaurs. And so I remembered that scene. And when I was thinking about what's the voice of giving up like, it's like, oh, you're in your bed at night, just laying in your bed and you're like, you know what, I'm going to start on that thing I've always wanted to do. And then this like overwhelming presence comes into your bedroom and it's like, no, 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 get, no, you're not going to do that. And it was like that dinosaur. And so throughout the book, throughout the show, I, I call it the T-Rex of giving up. It's like this overwhelming prehistoric monster just staring at you, just like, no, give up. We can all have different kinds of voices. It's just a helpful exercise to persona. For me, it just was helpful to take like a huge Cretaceous Tyrannosaurus Rex wasn't alive in the Jurassic era. It was the Cretaceous period. Um, but like, <laughs> you know, Cretaceous monster and just go, this is a funny thing that's in my life because then you can start to deal with it and stuff like that. So when I gave it a personality, then I could talk to it and I could deal with it and I could say, what are your arguments? Those are strong arguments. Maybe they're not true, but they're very convincing arguments. And now how can I develop counter arguments to that? which is what the show and the book is about is like, I had to develop these counter arguments, what I would call mental health or spiritual practices in order to keep walking the path that I felt like I was being invited to. So we all have a voice that we have to name. It's really fascinating to do that with other scenarios. Sometimes I get uh, nervous or if I'm going to speak at a church or something like that, or do something about faith or something. And then I, I always have this voice that's like, that's going to be controversial. And I, I realized it was some older lady in a community, you know, that I kept having that voice. And once you do that, it's like you kind of release the haunting. You know, every story of a house haunting is like, there's a ghost in your house and it's knocking over your china. And the whole story is, where did this come from? And then once you can figure out where it came from, you can solve the haunting and the haunting ends, you know. It's the same thing with the voice. It's like when you figure out where this came from, you can release yourself from that voice. We'd love for you to dig into the voice of wonder, because wonder is one of the key things you bring up for battling that. Holly, you and I chatted about that. The wonder hack really struck both of us, I think. Yeah, I found that a really, really helpful part of your book. And I'd love to hear you talk more on that, because I think when things are unknown or not going as I may expect them to go, it's really easy to get trapped in this, like trapped listening to that voice or yeah. stuck in cynicism. So yeah, I'd love to hear you more talk about that wonder piece. Yeah. The idea is we're always building narratives about this about where we're at. We have various levels of narratives. The first one always is am I safe or not in this situation? That's a ever-going narrative that's happening in us. There's also these narratives that are deeper, a little more intense, but they're happening all the time and they sound like this is who I am, this is what I'm capable of doing. And this is how my life is going to turn out. And those narratives are dictating 
a lot of how we make decisions and what we think about our lives. And I, I was at a time in my life where I was like, well, I think now in teaching it, I would say, are there ever moments where we don't have narratives? But I had some experiences that I would define as wonder, seeing it, you know, camping up in the mountains, seeing like immense stars late at night, or I've had these experiences surfing, or I've had some really like kind of holy moments. And what happens in that moment is that the narratives stop. Like they just go up, they put, they're put on pause for a moment. And I remember thinking, well, if the narratives can stop, then the narratives are just something that is, it's not necessarily true. It's just something that's framing what I think is happening. And so then I was like, maybe I could start what I was like, what is happening in these moments? What is going on? And I realized through thinking it through, I was like, oh, what's happening is I'm being put in a spot where I don't know what's happening. I don't know what's going on. And so there's no narratives about it. It usually happens in like new situations. Like I, I, I reference it in the book and in the show where I talk about like I backpacked Europe for a while. I had this train pass and we'd get off the train and we'd enter into some beautiful city. We'd be like, this is the most beautiful city I've ever seen in the world. And then three days later, we'd be like, I'm so bored. Let's go to the next most beautiful city in the world. And I was like, did the cities change? No, it's just we got familiar with it. We developed narratives about it. So I was like, oh, so how do you keep newness in a life where you get familiar with it? And my wonder hack was just ask this question, which is what don't I know in this situation? Like just what don't I know about what's happening right now? It's just a way to confront the narrative and mostly the narrative that's really destructive for me and leads to a lot of depression is nothing is going to change. This miserable moment I find myself in, this miserable day I'm having, this is every day for the rest of my life. It's never going to get better. It's always going to be like this. And so just going, well, what don't I know about what's happening right now? And there's tons of scalability you could do with that. One simple thing is like find your heartbeat. And if you sit with your heartbeat for a while, you can go, you can come to the conclusion, you're like, oh, I'm only alive because of something inside of me that I'm not in charge of. I can't control my heartbeat. It's there working all the time. I only exist by something I'm not in charge of. <laughs> you kind of sit with that unknownness and that lack of control. It'll fill you with wonder. It'll, you'll receive the grace. Same with your respiratory system. Same with the orbit of the planet. There's so many graces, so many things happening that are sustaining your life. And then my question is, is like, what, what are those graces do you know? And what graces do you not know? Maybe there are more graces that I could cue in on. It's maybe not so much in the book, but like I remember there's been times when I was dealing with depression that I, I noticed I would go into nature and I'd notice things happening, notice the migrations of the birds, notice the insects doing things in my garden. These kinds of things, you're like, there are other narratives going on than the narrative that I'm telling myself about reality. So just practicing this, like, what don't I know about what's happening right now? It reveals wonder. It initiates curiosity, which, uh, you know, kind of fans passion and interest, those kinds of things. So, yeah, because I'm like, we should go to the mountains and we should go to the ocean and we should go to concerts and look at the stars. But we also have jobs and responsibilities. You know, like I have a three-year-old who's going to get up soon and I got to get them food. And, you know, I woke up every day and I make lunch for my kids and take them to school. There's things I, that are consistent and familiar, but how do I make it anew? And how do I bring about that filter of wonder? 
that is something that I still practice to this day. It's a practice that keeps me alive. It's a practice that keeps me living. That's really helpful. So would you, I, I'm not quite sure if this question will, will totally make sense. So help me out. Mm-hmm. But would, would you say it's not necessarily finding the right narrative or the perfect narrative that will fit you always, but being open to the fact that challenging your narrative in an ongoing way or being open to the fact that narratives do or maybe need to change? Yeah. Well, I think uh, nothing's ever going to change is a limiting conclusion. It's an assumption that says, this is how things are always going to be. Well, what builds that assumption? What are the assumptions that build that argument? And uh, I would say that wonder helps you see that all arguments are really just assumptions put together. And so when you can begin pulling them apart, it'll open you up to a universe of possibilities. So what one thing that I do, and this is kind of the main practice in this chapter, we're talking about wonder is moving from I'm never going to be, or this is always going to stay this way to I'm on my way. I'm on my way um, means that if I'm in some place or I feel like I'm stuck, I'm like, well, this is just one part of this longer process. For those who haven't read the book or seen the show, like I had this moment where I was doing a creative project and I got frustrated and I said, I'm never going to be a great artist. And I was like, whoa, that's crazy. I just made a narrative about my life. I made a true, I predicted a trajectory of where I thought I was heading. And so what I had to do is change that narrative. And I just said, well, I'm on my way to being a great artist. It didn't become overly arrogant. and mean, like I'm the best artist around. It just said, I'm part of a larger trajectory and I'm just in one part of that. And I think what our narratives are is they're there to kind of keep us safe and keep things predictable and stuff. So why don't we, we don't have to become overly arrogant. I mean, maybe you could say like one day I'm going to be the biggest, greatest artist there has ever lived. If that's helpful for you, that sounds a little bit hubris and maybe a little egocentric. But I think for me, giving permission to be like, I'm on my way to being a great artist is saying like, Hey, I'm in this for 40, 50 years. And I can't wait to see what I do in the next 20 years. And then after that, maybe I'll make my best stuff in, in my late 60s. I want to be around for that. I want to keep committed to this. And so then that affects how I'm living my life now. It just makes the timeline a lot longer and a lot more grace-filled to go, I'm on my way. I'm in a process. I love how you talk about the comparison culture we're in, the culture of comparison, you know, fueled by mm-hmm. Instagram and so on. And I, I, I find that, you know just about deadly. And I have really struggled with comparison in my life. I think I'm better now a little bit at the age I am. But even even now, I can still get swept away by that, by the success yeah. of other writers, by, you know, how nice your kitchen is, by <laughs> <laughs> whatever, all the things. And it feels like a deeply spiritual battle yeah. uh, to fight that tendency to compare. So can you help us, Scott, heal, heal our comparing? Yes. <laughs> Aw. <laughs> Scott's, Scott's to- son has joined us. We're my going toddler to be welcoming Jones just, and kind. Uh, got in my lap. And hey, buddy, uh, there's some muffins over there if you're hungry. Um, yeah. How do, we li- how do we deal with a culture of comparison? What I found that works for me is bringing me back to how can I be a contribution? So we can easily get in a comparative narrative because we see so many images. We see so many like... architecture digest, homes, celebrities, life, you know, and all of this is a curated reality. All of it's Photoshopped or set up a certain way. I'm always impressed when people are like, 
here's our beautiful house and they have kids and I'm like, where's all the crap on the floor? You know, like where is that? Where did that? It's just shoved in closets. That's where it's at. But we look at that and we go, man, I can never keep my house that clean. Or look at how that, how did they get there? And there's so many things. We could talk tons about comparison and the falsity in a curated reality. But what we're very aware of is our limitations, our weaknesses, our vulnerabilities. The big part of this book is to say, a dream dies because usually a dream is a version of yourself without any vulnerabilities. And your vulnerabilities is not necessarily your weaknesses and limitations themselves, it's your relationship to them. How do you feel about having those? And I started to understand that I had to let a perfected perfection dream die to get to a life that has vulnerabilities and walk forward in that. And I would say that being a contribution is embracing that you have some limitations and weaknesses and that's okay. In fact, they become the ways you uniquely contribute. So I have a toddler sitting on my lap right now, you know, and, and one of the gifts of having kids is that they, you don't have, you don't have oodles of time. You just have very little time to do something you hope to do. So you got to get really specific on what you want to do. And one of the gifts of having these kids that I have is them making me go, what do I want to do the most? Like, and I have a t-shirt idea every single day. I use this example. But at the end of my life, I don't want to have made a t-shirt every single day. I want to do some other things. So I realize I have way more ideas. Yeah, there it is. I have way more ideas than I have time for. What is the most important? What can I spend time on that? And that has uniquely affected how I am as an artist and how I contribute. So contribution, and I say contribution isn't necessarily making things, although I believe there will be artifacts to this work. But contribution is really what you love and why. What do you love and why? And committing to what you deeply, deeply love and why you love that and practicing that love. Just it's, man, I have, I, Karen, same as you, I, I live in a culture of comparison and this is a practice I do daily is especially when I'm participating on social media and trying to offer something. But I see all the other things and I can be like, man, I'm just so far behind. I don't have time for that. I wish I even knew how to make reels <laughs> very well. Oh yeah, reels. And I'm in my 40s and I'm like, oh, I got to learn how to make reels now? Come on. <laughs> um, but it's just, I can go, well, what? how can I contribute today? And what can be my, con- I can be a contribution today. What can I contribute? And I just constantly come back to that. Especially, I'm, I, my book came out a week ago and I'm for sure in the post book uh, lows, post book release lows, which if you are a hopeful artist or artist or author, maybe you don't know this, but when you release a book, you get really sad on the other side of it. It's a real, it's a, it's a weird thing of like, finally this thing is over, but there's this like low on the other side because uh, and maybe maybe other authors who are really successful or meaning I see their books in the shop windows and stuff, maybe you feel different if that happens. But most of us who are going to be authors, you know, our books for a week maybe are turned forward and then they they are turned sideways in a random bookstore. Um, you know, you, you kind of hope your stuff is going to go everywhere, but it has its humble participation. It's never going to be what you hope it is. But it's such a great honor and privilege to be able to contribute something. It's a great privilege to get paid to make something. It's a great privilege to be able to contribute. Um, you know, and that led to this conversation. There's so many great things. And so I just constantly come back to like, can I be grateful for one of the aspects of contribution I talk about is gratitude, you know, having the state of gratitude and being grateful to being able to contribute however I can today. 
Because sometimes it's not accomplishments. Sometimes it can be like these kids, I'm their dad, and I can contribute an ear, a hug, a kind word, you know, food, a playtime, a wrestle. This kid loves to wrestle. I hate wrestling. Even this kid loves to wrestle. <laughs> but it's an active contribution that I'll wrestle with him for like 20 minutes, you know? I can be, every day I can be a contribution. And how do I cue in on that? That is a lot more, you know, how do I leave my phone of comparison and cue into being a, you know, the reality that I can contribute to? I think that's the move that I find really help, helpful and healthy. And that move towards contributing kind of alludes to this work that is done with other people. And that's something that you write about this idea of expanders or finding other people who can help us on yeah. our journey. Do you have any tips on like what to look for in an expander or if you want to explain what you mean by that term? Yeah. Expander, it's somebody who expands your idea of what's possible and it takes some time. You know, it's not instantaneous. Uh, it's taking me time to really think about because usually it's not one person. You'll have like a multitude of people who will expand certain things about you. I think whenever you see somebody doing something and you're like, man, I wish I could do that. I, that's something I deeply want to do. I think just asking why, what is, what specifically about that is really attractive to you? Let me tell you a story. Like my friend, Jeremy is a fantastic painter. And I was lamenting to him that I was like, man, every time I go to these like art walks or seeing other artists, I'm always just passing through and kind of frustrated not finding what I want. And he goes, what you're looking for is the work you should be making. Like when you go to all these galleries and stuff and you're like, I wish this art, why can't I find what I'm looking for? Like that's <laughs> pointing you to what you should be making. And uh, I think I break down a few stories about that in the book about like how I started to clue in on that. So I think that's what you need to be paying attention to. I had this moment, there's this great radio program called Radio Lab. I think they've been going for like 20 years now, but these, they've done a few live events. And I remember going to this live event in Portland, Oregon, and it was like storytelling and, and music and puppetry and visuals and stuff. And the whole time I was there, I was like, this is everything I want to do. This is everything I want. I want to do this kind of creative expression. And that was before I was doing anything quite like that. And so I, you know, and I had to go, why? What was happening to me? What did I love about it? What did I hope to participate in? What kind of contribution? I had to think through all that kind of stuff. So expanders, you know, but, but then uh, not just with performers, but even there's people I've met and they just have a certain way of being in the world. And I want to like, I want to be grounded like that. I want to, how are you doing that? Oh, you take time, you get away, you spend, you have deep spiritual practices. Oh, tell me about that. Oh, my friend, Canadian theologian, Brad Jersak, he just mentioned one time he has a real kind of robust prayer life and he has like a thing that he follows. And so I just called him and I was like, can you just tell me about like what you do? <laughs> I just want to know, I, you know, just because I see who you are in the world and I want to be like, like that in some ways. Um, tell me about your secret life that you have with God. You know, it can be about anything, about like how people are cooking food, how people are parenting, whatever is like going, oh, that's a possibility. My wife and I, we both come from families that are real complicated. Let's just say that. And there's actually a couple and their family dynamic has its complications, but the way they parent their now adult kids is really great. And we, they're kind of expanders for us. We, we just ask them about like, how did you navigate that? How did you... 
you know, they're like 10 years older than us. They're really helpful in that expansion. I really love that. I love the idea of expanders. It reminds me when we were talking about the culture of comparison earlier, it reminds me of the choice we have that we can, you know, work that muscle in our minds mm-hmm. and hearts of choosing to view people as expanders and not as conquerors over all we have yeah. not been scaling up mm. and scaling down. Like when I see somebody who like puts on a beautiful dinner party, for example, and I think, well, I actually probably can't do that exactly, but I can do this smaller version of it my way, or I can scale up something else someone does my way. And I really found that that resonated. And I like that idea, especially I would say for my daughter, Holly, and her brothers for younger people to think that way about like, it's, yeah. it's a way of networking yeah. in a way, yeah. finding your expanders. Yeah, absolutely. And everybody's human, you know, like everything's Sometimes we think people have unique and secret gifts that none of us can have, but really everything's a learned skill. And so if you give yourself a long enough timeline, you can go, well, how did you learn how to do that? Could I learn how to do that? Um, you know, some of the challenges for me is I, like I, I exercise and stuff, but I'm not like a real, I've never been a real sporty sport guy. <laughs> but now in my 40s, I'm like, oh, I need to really pay attention to this physicality. So I'm learning from other friends about, okay, so what do you do? How do I need to pay attention to my body? There's so much stretching I got to do, you know, things like that. Like there's all kinds of aspects because I see my friends doing it. I'm like, if you're doing it, how did you figure it out? And I think that's the thing is somebody had to figure it out before you and that information is accessible to you. And you might be a person who figures out something to uniquely do too. And then maybe you one day become the person that people come and ask, uh, how did you figure that out? What did you do? You know? So yeah, it's, it's we're in this long chain of like sharing about how we figured out how to be a human <laughs> and how we did it. No, I really like that. I find it helpful to think about at this point in my life to hear about how people started to think about what their dreams were or the questions that other people have asked as well. I think yeah. as I... Like I I just finished this round of school and I'm trying to figure out what to do for work or really what what my dreams are. I think that's a question that Mm -hmm. I find scarier than I'd like to. Um, And so it's really helpful to think that I don't just have to ask, okay, what are other people's endpoints and what should my end goal be? Um, But rather, okay, what did this process look like for people and what were... What were the steps steps taken? And I think that's something that you that you touched on in your book too. That that we want to become the kind of person who enjoys the life that they're living in that yeah. process, mm-hmm. and that seems really important because it's hard to imagine not being happy if you get to the end goal that you wanted, but kind of miss the process of getting there. Yeah, because there's story after story of people who got to their end goal and they're like. Uh, didn't do what I thought I would. <laughs> um, all the way from like, there's stories of like Super Bowl people winning the Super Bowl, and then on the bus ride home, they're just like, "We did it! Oh, well, we're gonna do it next year!" And I'm like, "Next year!" They're not even enjoying the moment. Or there's a story of a really famous actress who, you know, wins an Oscar, and she's just sitting in her hotel room by herself, and she's just like well, that didn't do what I hoped it would do or, you know, there's lots of things. 
And I, I tell a story about J.J. Abrams, who's a famous film director here in the U.S. And somebody asked him because he directed when they rebooted Star Wars again. And it, basically, he, the, the guy says, do you feel different now that you've done this movie? And he's like, no, I've never felt different by any of my accomplishments. For me, at least, I do want to set goals and I do want to go to places and I do want to try to do things. But I think what I've seen, though, how you get there long term is you enjoy getting there versus what you think the end's going to give you. And so I give an example in the book where I say, imagine you were going to go on a road trip and you found out that you weren't going to be able to get to your destination. What kind of road trip would then you then go on? You'd go on a road trip that was just as enjoyable as getting to the destination. And so I now think about my life in going, what would get me up in the morning to continue the journey of life I'm on? Like I have some goals in mind and I don't know if I'm going to get there, but I'm going that direction. But that path to get there feels really interesting and like something I want to wake up and show up for. And that's how I think that my, per- my perspective has changed. It's not so goal oriented, meaning outcome oriented. It's more of like, that is the direction I hope to head. And let's see what turns out. My wife and I have a mantra that says an email and a phone call can change everything because we, you know, we've been vocational artists for a while. And as you can probably guess, we've been po. We've been really poor at times in our <laughs> life. And we would be so despairing and like nothing's going to work out and stuff. And then like we'd get an email and be like, oh, wow, our bills are paid for four months, you know, just like that. So all the worry yesterday now seems void in the reality of what an email or phone call did. I've just kind of learned, okay, I want to head a direction, but I don't know what's going to happen on that journey there, but I'm up for it. But let's, this is the direction I want. I think sometimes we go, I just don't, what you're saying, I don't know what my dream is, is like, you're still kind of, kind of figuring out like, what is the direction I'd like to head? And maybe ultimately you don't know, maybe seasonally it'll change throughout your life. You know, uh, like you might do something and get there and be like, I did that. What's the next thing I want to do? I woke up early this morning and I sat in my studio and I did my quiet time and stuff like that. But for 15 minutes, I just was like, what do you deeply want to do? What's in you the most that's calling out? And and I just kind of started jotting some notes down because I know kind of the things where I want to go. But just it's like paying attention to that is really helpful. And I don't know about, I mean, Holly, we could spend the rest of this interview talking about your life. But like, you know, I know a lot of people in their 20s go, I don't know what I'm going to do. And I, and I just go, well, do micro doings, do micro wantings. One of the, a question I like to ask my friends now is like, if you could have a job in your 20s for a summer that you never got to do, what would that job be? Because <clears throat> your 20s are a great time for you to just have micro jobs just short-term experiences because you don't have a lot of stuff. You have some flexibility. You know, maybe you have babies, but maybe most likely you don't. So you have, you have, you're, you're free to do some stuff, try some things out. You'll be really surprised by all the things you kind of try out and experience and do in your twenties, how they come and inform your work in your thirties and forties and fifties later on. So I'm always, instead of like, what's my ultimate want? What's my ultimate goal? Just like, do some micro ones. What's one thing that if you could take four months to learn and try out, what would you do? And then kind of lay some of that stuff out and then try that stuff out. 
during my 20s, I was a waiter. I was a high school teacher. I was, uh, I traveled to Europe. I went on tour with a band <laughs> and like made paintings, which is really, you know, it was a hot thing in the, in the zeros. You know, there's lots of things I just tried that didn't ever become like full on careers, but they all inform certain things I did. That's How does that resonate really with you? Helpful. Are you like, is that helpful? Okay. Yeah. It, it's actually really freeing. Cause I think I, yeah, I don't have children and I'm, I'm not in school right now. I'm working my first kind of nine to five style job. So I have a lot more time and I think it's, I have experienced that as a kind of pressure to use yeah. this time to set the right foundation for whatever I'd want to be doing. But that's yeah. a really, really helpful shift of these. Yeah. Okay, what are these micro, micro things? Um, Scott, tell us about the death practice, because it's so weird, but I think it's probably really super helpful. I haven't tried it yet, but I intend to. Like, I think in Western society, you know, we're really uncomfortable with death as we should be it's not it's not pleasant and um you know it's a little morbid and if you know the enneagram it's like a little enneagram flourish it's a little downy melancholic but what i found helpful is that um and maybe our our listening audience has had this experience like often when we've been in like a car accident or you had to go to a surgery and you got put under and you were forced to not be in control that kind of I call it, the poet David White says that conversation with your eventual disappearance, that converse, you know, your ultimate conversation with your ending comes really close. And with that conversation, a lot of adjustments are made. A lot of priorities are reset. And my question is, is like, well, hopefully I have another 40 years of living or longer. Could I apply that end of life wisdom that I wish I would have done this, I, my regrets, that kind of stuff, to how I'm choosing to live my life now. Because I, not that I, I don't know if you can have a life without regrets, but I just be like, man, I'm really glad I didn't do that or I didn't give up on that. So the death practice just kinds of, it keeps that close. It keeps, it keeps that wisdom really close. So you can do a real, and I learned this from my spiritual director who taught me, it was just kind of like you lay on the ground and you pretend you're in your casket and you just kind of start letting everything go because before you die, you have to let everything go. So as you just start letting things go, what comes to the surface? What's, what's deep desire, your deep regret? What, what becomes most priority? That's that, you know, that's a little theatrical and a little intense. I have little microwaves of death practices yeah, so one of the things I do, say I get a, offered a creative project that I'm kind of interested in doing, but I know is going to take a lot of time. I'll do a little mini death practice with it, which is I'll go, if this was the last thing I did, if in three months I was going to die and this is like the last thing I did, would I really regret doing this? And that's way too much pressure to put on <laughs> some kind of project. But if I go, yeah. I'm okay with that, then that's a good sign. But if I'm like, no, I would hate if this was the last thing I did. Well, then it makes me go, well, why? What would you rather have done with that time? And I go, well, I would rather have done this. And then the question is, well, why are you ignoring that? If that's the deepest thing in you, why are you ignoring that? And what I say happens is in that moment, kind of like an inner compass comes up that inner compass that's like, this is your deepest desire, which I think is a divine conversation. I actually think that's from God. Desires take discernment, yes, because they can lead to flourishing, they can lead to destruction, for sure. 
But I do think that God speaks, and Ignatius in the 1500s wrote this down, that God speaks through our desires. It's a hidden path of desire that's been put in you to walk. It's kind of a divine pathway in you. It's just making sure I'm always in touch with that, because that I think is a drive of life. So I just, yeah, I have always like a little death practice. Recently, I just was like, if I died in 10 years, is there anything that I'd really regret? And in that moment, what came to the surface was really surprising. I grew up in a little beach town in Washington state and I live by the ocean. I've lived by the ocean most of my life. Now I live in Austin, Texas, which isn't forever, but it doesn't have a lot of beachfront property. (laughs) And I was like, I deeply miss the ocean. I think if I died in 10 years, one of the things I'd deeply regret is not being by the ocean. Does that mean we're moving tomorrow? No, I just was curious that's something I need to spend some time with. I just started a conversation with my wife about it. Obviously, beachfront property is expensive. There's all of these things. Maybe it just means I need to dedicate time in my calendar every year where I spend some time with the ocean because I really love it. You know what I'm saying? It just is cluing. It's just bringing me to this thing, that I, this conversation that I am having, but I'm maybe unaware of. That's what I think is helpful is kind of bringing up these priorities, these deep desires. It's just a helpful. It's surprising that focusing and dealing with death is what actually helps you live the best. I really love that. I think for this past season, so to speak, of my life, and I think for a lot of my peers, a period of kind of deconstructing, I know that language is used a lot, whether that's faith narratives or beliefs or ways that we thought the world worked. I think a lot of this has been triggered by things like the pandemic and things that followed that. So I was wondering if if maybe you could give some summarizing tips or an invitation to how to ask those questions in a way that leads to this curiosity and wonder that you seem to really have and embody rather than this despair that we've talked about <laughs> moving away from. Um, I know it's not really a, I, I don't I know if that's like a light despair. wrap up. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. No, and I have moments of despair too. Again, where it's mostly caused by a narrative I'm making, I'm telling myself, and then going, well, are there other possibilities? I love that story, and I often just like use it as a prayer. I love that story where this guy brings his son to Jesus, and he's possessed, and he's like, yeah, he does all this and stuff. He's like, so Jesus, if you can do anything, would you have mercy and help us? And Jesus is like, if I can do anything everything's possible for him who believes. And then his dad goes, well, I do believe, but help me with my unbelief. And I think in that paradoxical statement, that's really the human experience, which is like, I have belief. I also have unbelief. And I live with both of those. There's things I don't know how it's going to turn out. And there's things I have hope in and belief in. And I think that's very honest. And I, I like honesty. So when we talk about like deconstruction and this kind of stuff, Sometimes I feel like even though we use those words, we forgot that deconstruction means you're assuming that you're going to still live in that house. Like if we're talking about blowing the whole thing up and walking away, that's a, we should use a different term. Deconstruction, you're seeing in the background, this took five months. This thing was totally gutted down. We lived, we were like lived out of suitcases for five months, this house I live in now. But we deconstructed it to rebuild it because we knew we wanted to live here. So deconstruction presupposes that you still want to have faith, that you still want to have hope in the world, 
that you still think that the world is much more enchanted and interesting and providential than maybe what our limited conclusions can say. But that the ways that that has been practiced or lived out or branded uh, stopped working for you. And you're trying to find, you're trying to get back to that love. So deconstruction means you love something. And it means like you're willing to take some things that got put on top of it apart so you can get back to what you really love. So I think we have to start there. Because if we don't love it, then let's just walk away from it. Let's just get rid of it and move on with our lives. I think what's happening to a lot of us, and we found that certain things uh, come with a lot of power. And some people were interested in using religion as power. And that led to a lot of atrocities that have been hidden and now been revealed. Um, And that's disappointing um, and heartbreaking. We have created systems for leaders to exist in without any accountability, not only to keep them from doing like bad and abusive things, but also for even for their own soul care. I'm a, I'm a spiritual director and I talk with a lot of pastors. You know, the, the hard part about being a, a pastor, a minister, a clergy member is that often churches want to hire you to be the same person forever. And that's just not the path of a human being. Everybody's always evolving. So for to hire somebody and be like, we'd like you to speak this way for the next 20 years and have your same conclusions and never grow. Well, what happens is there's like a baby step to becoming a divided self. And pastors, 10 years down the line, I'm like, I'm a much different person internally than I am externally. And the pain of that division becomes too much that it implodes or it explodes, whatever. So allowing maybe rethinking through how we think about our leaders and, and, and how they can participate in the evolution of being a human being, in the evolution of belief and growth and learning and allowing them to do that. I also think too that there are core ingredients to every transformational gathering, which is, and I lay this out in the book a little bit, it's not the point, but it's like storytelling, gift giving, music of some kind, and release of shame. And what I see that is that church has just become a version of all those things that has a certain kind of brand. And some people just like, it hasn't, if you're faithful or not, it's just like, I just don't like this brand anymore. Like, like we, everything's invented. Like we don't have to do anything. So why are we doing what we're doing and what's working? What happens a lot is, is that we build, you know, we have mechanics to get to the essence and then uh, it's just there to help us get to this essence. But often the mechanics become, our, our focus and our obsession because we can control those. Maybe we got too obsessed with our mechanics and we need to get back to the essence. Mechanics are contextual. Church was very different 200 years ago and church will be very different 200 years from now. So what are the core ingredients and how are we contextualizing those now and maybe adjusting and doing that stuff? So I think those are some of the things, at least when I think about deconstruction or even restoration, is like I start, I start with the fact that I love this. I think we're all in a process of growing, including our leaders, and how can we allow for that to happen and health? And then how can we know what the core elements of kind of a transformational experience are and practice as a community and go, should we adopt different ways of doing this? Do we need to transform? Do we, should we be in rows or should we be in tables? Should we, you know, like, should one person speak all the time or should we have a group of teachers? You know, the last church that I was a part of, I love that the main leader rarely spoke. He kind of, we had, there was like 12 of us on the teaching team, mostly women. And I loved it. And it was just such a great community of wisdom that would come in and speak in different things. Maybe we think of larger ways of communicating. I don't know. You know know what I'm saying? This isn't a like, how should we do church in the 21st century (laughs) podcast? But those are some of the things that I think about in that idea. 
That's really helpful. helpful. Okay. Absolutely. And I think it, it sounds like kind of taking a similar posture to your community as, as you write about taking to yourself, right. Of listening Mm -hmm. to what's the core desire here and how do I act in a way that aligns with that and, and see this as a process rather than like a product that needs to be perfectly done. So that's really helpful. And I think, yeah, I'll definitely be thinking more on that. Um, So thank you so much, Scott. And yeah, just thank you, Scott. And thank you, Holly. I've had such a good time. And thank you, son. (laughs) Thank you, Scott, son. This is Jones is is my son. This is my cat. Oh, hi. This is Giorgio Giorgio O'Keefe. And then Frida Kahlo is at my lap. (laughs) These are oh, our great. new kittens. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's wonderful. Thank <laughs> you for letting us into your happy home, Scott. It's been great being with you. Thank you for the wonderful conversation. Thank you for listening. Check out more podcasts and subscribe to Faith Today magazine for free at faithtoday.ca. This podcast is produced by the Evangelical Fellowship of Canada. If you enjoyed it, please rate or share it.